This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from Queens College. I'm Leslie Hankson from Georgetown University. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our webpage is theannexpodcast.com. We're on Twitter at SociAnnex, and you can find us on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Today, we're very excited to talk to Corey Fields from Georgetown. His book, Black Elephants in the Room, The Unexpected Politics of African-American Republicans, talks about black Republicans. It's published by the University of California Press. Uh, Welcome, uh, Corey. Thanks for having me on. Um, But you shouldn't be excited. My plan is to bore you beyond belief. (laughs) Very, very concerned. (laughs) <laughs> well, then it'll be right in line with our uh, current format. Okay. I, I always tell my uh, students that I like to take topics that are fun and then make them so boring that they go past boring and back to fun again. <laughs> I, had this thing, I used to describe like the difference between the New Yorker and Vanity Fair, right? Like the New Yorker makes boring things, writes about boring things in interesting ways. And the Vanity Fair would write about interesting things in really boring ways. <laughs> Sort of like, yeah, or, or that whole uh, publishing genre of, you know, blank, totally boring commodity. How it explains the history of the universe. Right. <laughs> love it. I yeah. love. I love those. Have you guys have never read the history of the cod? Oh, co- oh, I, I just read that. I mean, come on. I'm a middle aged dad. I've got to read stuff like that. <laughs> Apparently, you guys haven't read my book because it's about how Black Republicans explain everything in the world so Uh, i have and i love it no but thanks for having me on i'm excited about this oh it's our pleasure we're so uh we're so excited to have you here so let's get started what's been lighting up my twitter feed is a lot of angry people who are mad about uh an experiment that's happening on twitter uh, it's been the rage of the past couple days. Twitter recently announced that they're experimenting with an expanded, is it 280 character tweet? Yep. It, yeah, it doubles the size of the constraints that have uh, governed the practice of tweeting since its inception. And uh, there's a lot of angry people. A lot of people don't like the idea, but uh, I read the the rationale for doing it, and it's actually kind of intriguing. So what they're doing is they're arguing that the traditional 140 character limit is a stronger constraint on some languages than others. And they use the example of Japanese tweets. Apparently, the Japanese very rarely run up against the 140 character wall. It's like 0.4% of all Japanese tweets hit that wall, whereas 9% of English language tweets do. And it boils down to the fact that I guess you can just say more with fewer characters in written Japanese. And so what they're arguing is that there's sort of a longer right-hand tail to an English language uh, brief, I say that in quotation marks, brief expression of ideas. 140 is ample in Japanese, but there's that constraint. And I guess... That's what they're trying to manufacture. Uh, Gabriel, I, I know Leslie isn't on Twitter. Yeah, thank God for her. Yeah, I'm a Twitter virgin, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we we keep on bringing it up just about every week, and then uh, <laughs> and then we say that we can't really recommend that you do it, because it's like basically <laughs> recommending a friend start drugs. Oh, not uh, just drugs. I mean, we're not talking weed. We're talking crack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. All the cool kids are doing it, I know, but I don't know. All the cool kids are doing it and getting nothing out of it. And, Corey, I know you're on Twitter as well, right? I am. I am. Any feelings about this 280-character expansion? Uh, It seems to have riled people up in a way that I'm kind of surprised by because I feel like a lot of the people who are the most upset are the same people who have these, like, crazy threads that are, like, 30 tweets long, right? And so I don't really get... What's the complaint? I mean, but actually hearing you give this justification is actually infinitely more fascinating because it sounds a little bit like Twitter is saying, oh, the oppressed English speakers are going to finally be freed up, Um, (laughs) which is so crazy. I wonder if that's really just like what they decided on was going to be the most viable pitch to this. Like, okay, this is what people can get behind. We're going to do this anyway, but what can we sell it with? And that was what... One, which is, yeah, I mean, yeah. 
What do yeah, you think? I'm just looking forward to it because it means now I don't have to learn Japanese, which is going to be a lot of fun <laughs> time. So, I, I, I don't know. I mean, kind of like Corey was saying, it's like, you know, you had people threading tweet storms. You had people screenshotting text. And it's kind of like people were already breaking the limit. Now you can just do it, you know, within the API. And so it's full text searchable and all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I would like it, actually, if uh, the first 140 show up in the feed. And then if you click on it, it expands to 280 or 500 or whatever. Mm. It, it would be nice to kind of have that middle ground where you don't have to truncate it. Um, so if there's something where you need the space, you can use it. But there's still kind of a tax, right? So not a hard ceiling, but a tax would be, uh, you know, on um, verbosity would be my preference. I, th I think it's a really cool idea. I guess we're going to see what happens. Leslie, what's going on with you? You know, lots. And I was going to talk about one thing, but now I actually think I want to segue into something else, uh, a story that perhaps most people in America haven't been thinking about. Um, yeah, so, it's, so I was listening to the radio, and they had a story about the Uyghur minority in China mm -hmm. and um, how over the, past, um, over the past year or so, the Chinese government has actually... Um, increase the amount of surveillance and policing in Uyghur communities exponentially, um, such that you know Uyghur businessmen are saying, you know, if we leave the country, we get detained as soon as we come back in, and then we have to go to re-education camps. There are cameras everywhere, and the police presence is unbelievable, and it's expanding uh, ever more, and it's partly in response to. Um, you know, this idea that Uyghurs are potential terrorists. I mean, there have been a number of Uyghurs who, that have actually joined um, ISIS. Um, and, um, but yeah, I mean, what's fascinating to me is, you know, looking at this case, if China would allow one to come in and actually study it on the ground, um, would be this kind of real-time hemming in of a uh, marginalized group that I kind of feel like we, we, we've seen in other places happen over time. But this is like, whoa, it's happening right now. And it's happening in this huge degree. And then being able to study the effects. Yeah, I remember hearing on uh, NPR about a year ago that China was doing all sorts of um, totally gratuitous harassment of the Uyghurs with things like uh, making them keep restaurants open during Ramadan or making restaurants serve pork, uh, which, really? you know, is not essential to the civil functioning of the state, right? It's mm -hmm. one thing to say that people can't rebel against the state or, um, you know, can't, uh, you know, openly spread sedition or something like that. You, you know, you may or you might think that's a little bit over the top, but you can see the purpose, right? Whereas this is just pointlessly uh, rubbing people's noses in it. It reminds me of, like, the kind of things you used to see in the ancient world with, like, the Seleucid Empire uh, you know, sacrificing a pig in the uh, the Temple of Solomon just mm. to piss the Jews off, and then they end up, you know, getting the uh, Maccabean revolt, that sort of thing. I mean, there's there's always something going on. I mean, uh, for me, I just think terrorism is, is such a load of BS. Not that not that it, I know it exists, but like yeah, in in so far as how much of a threat that it poses, I wonder is this. Uh, overt oppression, or are people sort of whipped up into a fear about terrorism, uh, like they are here? I mean, honestly, you're you're in way you're in much more danger of you know, ordering a hot dog off the street of New York than you are uh, <laughs> uh, getting killed by a terrorist attack. Actually, I, I remember I uh, I was playing with the, uh, Start Data. It's data on terrorism fatalities from the University of Maryland a few years ago. And uh, the worst year of terrorism, I think, in the Israeli-occupied territory was 2002. Israeli society is always, you know, very concerned with terrorism. And I found, like, the actual fatality rate as a result of terrorism was lower than you getting killed from food poisoning in the United States. So, like, that, that falafel that I ordered for lunch was much more of a mortal danger than terrorism would be in the thick of the Antifada. 
in 2002. Leslie. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting question, uh, an interesting point, like which com- which is which, the chicken or the egg? And I actually think the Uyghurs were already being oppressed, right? And then you have this possible threat of terrorism, and then you actually have a rationale for actually not just continuing um, the oppression, but ramping it up. So well, it's a positive feedback cycle, right? Where yeah. you, you have a certain amount of oppression, some of which you can understand in terms of, you know, more or less legitimate policing aims. You know, it doesn't mean there's not blowback, um, but, you know, it still creates resentment. And some of which is just pointless, petty harassment, like this business with the restaurants. Um, And then, you know, this in turn leads to resentment, which leads to, uh, you know, opposition to the central regime, which in turn leads to greater repression, that sort of thing, and you get this positive feedback cycle. But I, 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 it just boggles my mind of like, <clears throat> if all I cared about was maintaining the power of my regime, I, I would, um, you know, I might very well surveil people. I might very well, uh, you know, have curfews or something like that. But why would I force people to eat a meat that they consider taboo? It's, yeah. it's just pointless. It's, and so what's in it for me? And it's like, yeah, I know, uh, you know, Han people like pork. God bless them. I like pork too, but it's you know more of it for us. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Presumably, there's some audience for this that like wants to see this. You know, religious minority treated like shit, and so it's like, yay! This is our will. I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't really understand why. You know, certainly leaders would care even anybody, but presumably that's why this is happening to bring everyone else together. Yeah. So Corey's point kind of reminds us of like our own politics, right? Where we'll sometimes see, you know, a lot of what the culture wars are about is kind of like, we don't like those other people and we're going to find some way to stick it to them, even if there's, it's kind of gratuitous or pointless or doesn't really help us in any way. It's just fun to uh, uh, stick it to the other side. It's like that coffee mug uh, that said filled with liberal tears. I remember hearing of a psychology experiment uh, some time ago where uh, it was an experiment on mice. And the headline finding from the study was that when you take out your aggressions and scapegoat someone, it's actually mentally healthy. Like it feels good and it restores people from a state of stress by scapegoating someone else. Oh, I, I, Robert Sapolsky had a study on that with uh, baboons. So Sapolsky has these great um, studies, and he has a couple of lectures that you can um, listen to uh, online where he he would dart these baboons and measure their uh, cortisone, cortisol, one of those. Cortisol, cortisol. yeah. Yeah, cortisol uh, levels, which is basically the stress hormone. And he found that when a uh, baboon loses a fight, it's cortisol levels are way up but if the baboon that loses a fight you know beats up a female or a juvenile or a lower rank male or something like that its cortisol levels go down so it's like it's a stress reliever to beat up on somebody weaker than you illustrative finding so gabe what's uh, what's going on with you so um i wanted to react to something uh one of our listeners uh tweeted which is uh torquil lingstad at uh, university of oslo I got to meet a couple of years ago. Uh, he, he retweeted this uh, Pew map of uh, where Protestants and Catholics live in Western Europe. Hmm. And basically it shows that, um, you know, most of continental uh, Europe is Catholic. The low countries are kind of um, nothing. And then, um, you know, most of Northern Europe, basically the Scandinavian countries and Britain are um, Protestant. Uh but and he was saying that you know this is kind of a misleading map and it you know the meaning of unaffiliated varies tremendously and the scan should be gray which is to say the non-affiliated color so I was kind of thinking about that in what respects he's right and what uh, scan scan meaning Scandinavia should be gray and I was thinking about that and thinking like well in what respects is he right and what respects is he wrong mm-hmm. um, so I think he's obviously right in the sense of saying that Scandinavia is primarily a post-Christian culture not a Protestant culture. Um, and, you know, we were talking a little and he's pointed out that in countries like Norway, you have automatic church registration uh, where you just kind of get automatically registered. And I'm thinking, like, well, that's interesting, right? You have this essentially post-Christian culture where you but you still have a established state church in the case of Scandinavia, the Lutheran church um, that people are automatically registered in. And so they're nominally Lutheran, but they're not really worshiping in it. 
Um, oh. Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, so I have a question about that, right? So I think that gets at us distinguishing between um, between religiosity, mm-hmm. right, and culture, right? Yeah. So to what extent is calling these two, it, it, to what extent is calling Norway, um, it's calling Scandinavia post-Christian in terms of religiosity, right? But mm-hmm. in terms of calling it post-Christian in terms of culture, right? I think mm-hmm. those are two different things. Yeah, and well, that's why you, I, I think post-Christian is still a pretty useful term instead of just saying non-religious because there's plenty mm-hmm. of countries that are non-religious, but you know, you kind of know it when you see it, when you see a post-Christian culture. There's a, you know, a difference between a country that got there from uh, you know, formerly being a, a Christian culture and a culture that uh, got there another way. Um, but I was thinking, like, so one way to take this is that you have these kind of policy regimes. So in Scandinavia, you have established churches, um, but you know they, they're essentially kind of subsumed into the into the state, and they more or less adopt the kind of values that we associate with Scandinavia. Um, but then you can contrast that with something like Germany, where in Germany, if you affiliate with a church, the Internal Revenue Service, whatever it's called in Germany, basically processes the tithes, and so this has the effect of driving down church membership in uh, Germany because effectively you have a very high marginal tax rate. You have a higher marginal tax rate if you're a member of a church in Germany than if you ain't. Gabe, did you do you mean to say that the government collects church dues on behalf of the church? Yes, in Germany, not wow. not not in Scandinavia. Uh, now in Scandinavia, you know, they just have an established church that gets paid out of general tax revenues. I think they might have a separate tithe tax in the same way that, you know, like the uh, FICA is itemized on your your mm. paycheck. Um, but you know, I was also thinking. So that's one respect, right? Is you can think about it in terms of these regimes matter, and I, I almost see it paralleling like Kieran Healy's notion of um, how blood collection regimes vary. And in some countries, it's almost like by default, everybody gives blood. And there's like institutionalized ways of making sure everybody gives blood. And you can opt out. Whereas in other countries, like the United States, you almost have to go out of your way to give blood. Hmm. And, you know, the, the main thing that determines blood collection rates is uh, whether it's kind of, you know, by default you do it or whether you opt out. And then I was thinking another way in which this map is still uh, essentially accurate, even if it's not really, um, you know, reflecting how people spend their Sundays, is there's a sense in which people could be culturally Protestant or Catholic, mm-hmm. um, even if they never go to church. So, you know, there's this old joke about um, a guy's walking down the street in Northern Ireland and a, a gunman steps out of the shadows and points a gun at him and says, you know, Protestant or Catholic? And then the guy says, atheist. And then he says, yes, but are you a Protestant or a Catholic atheist? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's like, and, um, you know, similarly, like, um, I was reading about um, the novelist uh, Sigrid Unset, who um, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928 for writing a uh, novel about medieval Norway. And um, she, in her adult she was raised with kind of the typical nominally Lutheran, but basically post-Christian, um, you know, culture of uh, Scandinavia, even in the, tw- you know, in the early 20th century. But, um, you know, she, in adulthood, <clears throat> converted to become a very devout Roman Catholic. And this consi- was considered scandalous at the time in Norway. Now, now we're talking about something that happened, you know, 60, 70 years ago. No, uh, longer, 90 years ago. So it's not necessarily going to be exactly the same. But at the time, this was considered, uh, you know, pretty scandalous, even though it was already, to a certain extent, a post-Christian culture. Um, and I, I think there's a sense in which people are kind of culturally Protestant or culturally Catholic, even if they don't actually go to church or know the Nicene Creed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, so that goes directly to my earlier point is, you know, if we, uh, is Scandinavia still in terms of culture, right? Protestant, regardless of whether no one goes to church anymore. I mean, that notion is, that notion is completely comfortable for uh, Jews. Yeah, it's, it's an ethno-religious concept, right? And we're yeah. used to thinking of Jews as an ethno-religious category, which is one reason why the Census Bureau won't let you say that you're, uh, you know, Jewish or Ashkenazi or whatever is your ethnic group. And mm. they'll, they'll recode that as missing data. Um, 
you know, but we, we kind of all know that Jewish is an ethno-religious category. Um, and to a certain extent, we, we're familiar with the idea that, you know, really the only difference between Serbian and Croatian is whether they're Orthodox or Catholic, mm. that those are essentially ethno-religious categories. But I think, you know, even when you get into countries where it's less marked, in part because they're internally homogenous or almost inter entirely internally homogenous, um, there's still a sense in which, you know, religious identity, even if it's essentially nominal, is part of the ethnic and or national conception. And now it's time for What I'm Reading. That's a segment where we talk about things that we're reading. And this week, we have Leslie. Leslie, tell us. Yeah, so, you know, I, I read this book when it first came out. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. And the book that I've been thinking about l lately is A Colony in a Nation by Chris Hayes, right? Mm -hmm. So I know he's not an academic. Um, and I actually started reading this book, um, like think, like assuming I would hate it. Um, but I actually didn't, I actually enjoyed it a lot. Right. So what Hayes does in this book is, so he basically says that there are two criminal justice regimes, regimes that operate simultaneously in this country, right? One that's ruled by law and the other that's, that's ruled by order, right? And he kind of credits Nixon and his administration um, for basically laying the groundwork for the creation of this dual system. Um, and not that this dual system didn't exist before, but but he but having this dual system uh, work and 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 be seen as like justified um, in an ostensibly post civil rights struggle America, right? Which is what makes it so. So, so kind of brilliant, right? Um, so some parts of America are ruled by law, and so and those parts enjoy these rights, you know, all the rights that are con commensurate with law, right? And he calls this segment of the country the nation, right? Um, and here we have a policing regime that we expect to see in a democracy, right? But then in other parts of the country, order prevails over law, right? And he taught and he he terms this segment of the population the colony, right? So here policing basically organizes a significant portion of the people's lives um, and is not really practiced in a way that considers the rights of the individuals, right? Mm -hmm. Including the right to life. Um, so here we have what resembles kind of like a totalitarian police state. Mm -hmm but it's embedded within a democracy, right? Which is what makes us so interesting. So how are the two defined? So there are these borders between what's the colony and what's the nation. Mm -hmm. And those he says are primarily defined by race. Mm -hmm. Although increasingly, like basically he's, he, his argument is that since the, since the great recession, um, class has been used as a dividing line, right? And working class white communities are in increasingly being associated with the colony. Um, and this in and of itself should give those currently defined as part of the nation pause because, you know, it seems that there exists a real threat that the tools that are used to control the colony could actually be used increasingly to control spaces that that are currently designated as part of the nation. Um, so, and think for me, and thinking back to the whole law and order dichotomy, what what I I think what interests me is who gets to decide what order looks like and what motivates that design. Um, I think Hayes would say is saying that it's all based on fear, um, specifically white fear, and this fear, which seems mostly irrational, imposes huge costs on people in the colony to keep the nation prosperous and allow its inhabitants to sleep at night, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I think that's basic. I think those, that's like, those are the cores of his argument. And, and, and yeah, I'm still like chewing over it all. Um, so what do you all think? Uh, can I just get a clarification? So it's like the idea is that different spheres of society, there's a law. So let's say there's a privileged class where the police follow the law and sort of mm -hmm. they have all of the trappings of what we would think of as a, a rule-bound society. And then there is a separate America in which it's mostly about keeping people in line. 
and those yes. laws are more ignored. Yeah, and it's mostly keeping people in line, it seems to me, through his argument, so that people who are part of the quote-unquote nation, like, can feel secure, right? Even, the, even if they may not have anything to do with anything having to do in these spaces where these, these policed people live. So. I mean, that sounds just like, you know, we were talking earlier about terrorism, and uh -huh. uh, just people's insane fear of of the Muslim community, and, and uh, you know how how the the state's coming down on them in some ways just to to pander to people's panic about the you know about the possibility that they themselves might be hurt by terrorism. Well, I, I mean, I think this law versus order is a very useful dichotomy. You know, you see it in things like you know the kind of Nixonian uh, aspects that what that. The Nixonian aspect of politics isn't about the rule of law. It's much more about the forces of order versus the forces of perceived chaos. And you see this encapsulated in things like, uh, you know, Trump somewhat infamously saying uh, an audience of, of cops, you know, that, you know, when you arrest somebody, feel free to rough them up a little bit. Right. Yeah. That, that, that's like a microcosm of the attitude of that, you know, it's 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 contrary to law. But in some ways, it's in favor of order and that it's saying that the agents of the state should be allowed to, um, you know, use somewhat arbitrary violence that's contrary to law in order to maintain the needs of order. Um, I, I read a I haven't read the Hayes book, although I, I generally like him and think he's a smart and um, intellectually honest guy. Um, but uh, I read a, there was a piece not in the current ASR, but the previous ASR by Syme, uh, S.E.I.M., called the ambulance, uh, which was all about paramedics driving ambulances. And essentially the article was, what do you do with homeless people? And, you know, you have these homeless people who are, you know, in some place where they're causing problems, but they're not really committing a crime, at least not a crime that's worth incarcerating. And they're not really experiencing a medical emergency, um, at least not one that's worth hospitalizing, but they're just being a pain in the ass and they're disrupting public life and, you know, in making it impossible for whatever business is there to operate for whatever other people are trying to be in that public space to occupy that public space and basically just disrupting order. And, um, but the cops see their core mission as maintaining law and prosecuting crimes or catching crimes and, um, you know, and things that the DA would actually prosecute that sort of thing. And, and you know, uh, paramedics see their core mission as treating medical emergencies. And so they're both kind of tasked with maintaining order, but they also see it as peripheral to their main mission. And so in practice, what you end up seeing is cops, paramedics, and then the uh, triage nurses at uh, emergency rooms arguing over who's going to have to deal with this uh, person who's a, a threat to order, but isn't really a threat to law. Yeah, Leslie, I was going to ask, so does um, Hayes talk about, I mean, so you mentioned that he sort of talks about the, I guess, expansion of the colony yeah. or that's the concern does he talk about who were the agents of colonization right so who like who are the actors here right like and who's supposed who's supposed to be worried it sounds like he's saying white middle class people you should be worried about this even though you're not affected now because the colon i mean colonization is coming for you but then i guess the question is who is who is it aren't the very people he's talking to arguably the agents who are doing the colonizing so I so I think I think that's partly right, right? So that's one of the things that I wasn't totally clear about. So 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 like I said, one of the questions that it came up that came up for me is whose order, mm. right? And who, who gets to decide, right, on what that order should look like, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you know, growing up in New York, right? You know. <laughs> Uh, that was Giuliani, right? Giuliani decided what order was going to look like, right? And um, you know, and I think it. I think in it, in large part, it depends on where you live in America. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I think would be particularly interesting, um, you know, for people who study, like for urban sociologists, people who study gentrification, right? If they could use this typology of law versus order to observe how it plays out in neighborhoods that are undergoing gentrification, right? So I think you could like witness in real time 
time, the fluidity of this boundary between colony and nation, right? Hmm. As, as well as who's marked as belonging to one versus the other within right. that same space, right? You know what I'm wondering? If the process of designating people as a threat to order kind of takes the shape that uh, the whole Colin Kaepernick taking a knee does, where mm -hmm. it start, you, you take an incident uh, and in order to whip up the population for your own uh, political benefit, you, you sort of rebrand something that's innocuous or a minor threat into something that uh, seems like an existential threat to a particular group in order to win over their support. I'm thinking about how, like, you know, the, the Colin Kaepernick taking a knee was a pretty uncontroversial, you know, uh, re there was a pretty uncontroversial reason for doing it. But to whip up, you know, the base, uh, Trump had to turn this into a uh, they hate America. They're protesting the truth. Well, wait a minute. You're, you're presuming that that was uncontroversial. I'm not saying I, I dispute it or anything like that. I'm just saying right. how would people in general take it? And his underlying issue was essentially that um, cops should be less aggressive in the use of force because it leads to these kind of false positive police shootings. And, and that is a controversial point, right? And, and it's precisely the issue we're talking about. It, it, his point was essentially that law should trump order and we should have less interest in order and more interest in law. And that's an extremely controversial point. For who? Well, for all the people who favor order over law, right? I mean, <laughs> the, uh, if you look at surveys, um, cops became more popular after 2015. And the, the most straightforward interpretation of that is that it was a backlash to Ferguson, that sort of business. Corey, you got to have something to say on this. Uh, you're at the intersection of conservatism and the black community. But, uh, I, don't want, <laughs> I don't want you to spoop yourself. But... <laughs> no, actually, oddly enough, I was thinking not so much about my research, but about my life. So I recently moved to Washington, D.C., and I'm in a probably, yeah, a, certainly a gentrifying neighborhood. And uh, I'm just thinking about this idea of, like, order. And, like, one of the things that's really interesting, even though I'm part of the problem, obviously, um, <laughs> is watching my fellow gentrifiers uh, talk about sort of almost the imposition of order onto this neighborhood, right, as if there isn't one that exists. And what always strikes me about this is that it, it feels very insidery, outsidery, because I'm like, well, to the people who live here, the rules of the soccer field are pretty clear, right? Like, mm -hmm. no one, the only people who seem frustrated are, like, the new white dudes who, like, want to put up a list. You know, it's like, well, yeah. the old-timers seem to know how this goes. There is an order. But it's like there's this sort of imposition of an external order that's being, you know, hotly debated. Um, and so I guess in some ways it's interesting to think about this, like, right, like, I guess this is Leslie's question of whose idea of order. Um, so, yeah, so that's where my head was at, actually, just like using your deep sociological insights to process my own bloody gentrification. <laughs> head. Can, I, can, can I go back to something uh, Corey said like five, ten minutes ago where he was saying, like, <clears throat> where does um, this drive for order come from? And, you know, is it, you know, in that Hayes is making the point that it could then be applied to middle class white people. But that wasn't what I heard Leslie saying in the intro. Again, I haven't read Hayes's book, but mm -hmm. um, I heard you saying that it could be applied to lower class whites, which is a big difference. Right. And, yes. and, and, and also, I, I mean, I think that's ironic in that if you look at who's the core constituency for order over law, as encapsulated in things like the Trump election, right? His constituency is uh, downscale whites. And, um, you know, what if this was 300 years ago when we were talking about the Haitian Revolution or something that would have called, you know, Les Petit Blancs? Uh, you know, the, this is the constituency that favors that, but Hayes seems to be making the argument, and it seems plausible on the face of it, that this sort of thing could be applied to that constituency as well, right? That, uh, especially with things like the opiate epidemic. No. Oh, I, yeah. to, no, totally. And I think, you know, we were talking, you know, offline about about police shootings, right? Um, fatal police shootings in 2017. And the majority of those shootings were were of whites. And um, and while there wasn't a class analysis, at least not one that I saw, I would hazard to guess that just about all of those whites were um, were not 
middle class and above. Uh, my understanding is a lot of the whites um, who are shot by cops are not, you know, I thought he was reaching for a gun, like the typical um, shooting of a, a black guy. It, the, the, the typical shooting of uh, a white person by a police officer is a mentally ill person who's committing suicide by cop. And so many okay. of those people actually would be middle class. Mm. At least in their in, at least in their family of origin, right? I mean, it, it may be that they've been homeless for the last few years, but they come from a middle class family. Mm. Well, so here's a debate about what constitutes middle class. Yeah, well, I'll have to save that for that's that's a whole other. Uh... Yeah, we'll solve that in the next episode. <laughs> yeah, okay. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going to turn our focus to Corey Fields. Corey is an associate professor of sociology at Georgetown University. He's the author of Black Elephants in the Room, The Unexpected Politics of African-American Republicans. Uh, and uh, it's published by the University of California Press. Corey, we're very happy to have you join us. Yeah, glad to be here. I've, been, I've enjoyed the conversation so far and enjoyed the previous episode. So hopefully I won't gum it up. You know, <laughs> when you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get that dead camp balance that we're known for. <laughs> Corey, Corey, can you tell us about uh, Black Elephants in the Room? Yeah, so no, the book, uh, like most first books, grew out of a dissertation project. Um, and, you know, it. I guess I like to think about it as providing some insight into what's it like to be Black and Republican today. Uh, there actually have been recently quite a few interesting historical takes on Black Republicans. There's sort of things have looked at like the development of Black partisanship in the United States. Uh, but what I was interested in was like the lived experience of being Black and Republican um, and what that could tell us both about, you know, sort of how identity, specifically race, structures political engagement, uh, but also a bigger story about sort of variation in terms of, you know, what it means to be Black and how Black people understand their Blackness and use it as a motivator, like behaviorally, uh, in terms of what they do. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, that was a very open-ended question. I'm not sure I'm answering it right. I've gotten out of like book hustling mode. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so I've like, you know, well, lost but, some of my skill of synopsis. Uh, well, so, well, I, I thought what an amazing topic because I feel like there's so much to learn about race and politics with a topic like this. Cause you have a, uh, you have a community that's sort of, a double on the double out group, both as blacks and as Republicans. What did you learn about race or politics through the process of making this book? Uh, yeah, right. So you're right. They're both right. They're minorities among blacks and even more minorities among Republicans. So depending on, you know, I mean, I guess the sort of generous number would be in most surveys about nine to 10% or as high end would be nine to 10% of black people would hand raise as Republican. Now the number who actually vote Republican varies wildly depending on, not that wildly, but it varies a lot depending on the actual election, like state, local, national. Um, but they're only, black people only make up about 3% of all Republicans, right? So they're marginal in both directions. Um, so in that sense, they were interesting. Uh, but I guess one of the things I learned, or I guess I mean, to some extent learned, was uh, I was struck by the extent to which there are minorities and outliers, but not necessarily that unique. Um, certainly in terms of thinking about black political behavior, right? So what I was struck by was the extent to which a lot of the people I talked to and a lot of the people I observed thought of themselves as engaged in black politics, right? Like sort of being Republican, they it was motivated by a commitment to, you know, black collective uplift. It was just, you know, they thought the best thing for black people was conservative social policies, right? Uh, Republican politics. Now, that wasn't the only way to be black and Republican. Uh, I guess the other interesting aspect was given that most of the people I talked to talked about the Republicanism in this sort of pro-black language, right? This pro-black framing. Um, the distinction between those people and 
our sort of popular notions around what a black Republican is and what a black Republican believes, right? So, um, so that was striking, right? The disconnect between the activist I was talking to and this sort of, you know, colorblind um, public face of black Republicans. Uh, so I guess the, you know, headline was, you know, black Republicans, you think you know, but you have no idea, right? Uh, Were they, I always... And- I always imagine uh, when I think of that group as sort of the, well, the, you know, the pre Rohypnol Bill Cosby, like the, uh, the uh, people should. <laughs> right, uh, pull your pants up, sagging. Like, yeah, that sort of personal responsibility message. Uh, there's, yeah, that's, that's certainly there. But that's actually, you know, that sort of conservative streak you will find across a lot of black politics, right? Like on both sides of the aisle, this sort of pull up your pants, kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, one of the things that was interesting, I, you know, I would often say quite a bit of what I heard uh, talking to black Republicans wasn't that inconsistent from what I would hear at Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, and I should say I'm black, right? So it's, <laughs> you know, it's not like some white dude being like, yeah, my family talks about black people yeah. should be more responsible at Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but you know, so, right. So some of this, yeah, sort of conservatism, personal responsibility messages um, very much, you know, don't just exist among Republicans. Right. I mean, in some ways, for me, what was more interesting were in some ways the politics of it and thinking through, you know, what was I seeing that helped me better understand why Republicans are less able to marshal and leverage the conservatism that exists within black communities, right? So in some ways, that's a more interesting, or not more interesting, but also an interesting question. Why aren't more black people Republican? Now, I can't, you know, given the nature of the research I did, I can't answer that question definitively, but Mm -hmm. it did feel like from talking to black Republicans and watching them seeing what that experience is like did sort of make me think, well, I guess I can understand why more black people don't do it, you know? Mm. (laughs) um, Yeah, you know, so I I have had a chance to read Corey's book and, you know, there are a couple of things um, in there that I found that I found actually really fascinating, right? So the first is, I mean, so you have, you know, kind of like this typology of black Republicans, right? Um, So there's the black Republican who, you know, is sick and tired of being taken advantage of by the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Who, you know, who embraces, you know, her inner conservative, right? And says... And says, you know what, we can mobile, I can mobilize this to actually do something for my community as a whole versus the other type of Republican, which I think is the Republican that the black Republican that we that we tend to imagine, you know, one who doesn't seem connected to the black community at all, Mm. um, one who is very individualistic. Right. Um, I mean, yeah. So one way to think about it is this sort of, you know, distinction between, I say, a black power through conservative principles versus uh, race doesn't matter kind mm-hmm. of conservatism. And I, but I would caution with the latter group. One of the things I try to do in the book uh, is sort of say that for, you know, colorblind or, you know, race blind black Republicans, it's not that they sort of are completely disconnected from black communities and don't care about black communities, right? I think it's Mm -hmm. more the case that we have to stop thinking about blackness as this master status that defines everything these people do, right? So what they're saying often is like, when I, you know, when I think about what church I want to go to or what neighborhood I want to live in or what what school I want my kids to go to, being black matters. Yeah, no, it sort of matters. But when I think about tax policy, well, I don't really understand why that's why my race should matter in that regard. Right. And so what to me that sort of drew out was this notion of, you know, it's not like we tend to head nod often to like, oh, right. Yeah, no, you know, all black people aren't the same. Sure, sure, sure. But then we in practice certainly as sociologists, often end up just sort of 
are you black? Yes, no. Right. (laughs) And so one of the things, you know, that with the black Republicans, even so even the colorblind black Republicans, it's very much a story around politics. Right. And the role that you think race should play in your politics, Mm -hmm. not so much like in your life in general. Now, certainly the, you know, race conscious black Republicans would critique that position and be like, you know, what are you talking about? How can you separate race from your politics? That's a naive position. But um, that's part of what the distinction is. It's right. To what extent do, you know, black people see race as structuring their life chances? Right. And Mm -hmm. and what role should it play in political organizing? It sounds to me like there are alternative visions. Uh, so what, what I'm gathering from you is that there is the uh, black Republicans, they don't ignore race. It's that they have a different vision of a lot of them have a different vision of how to advance the black community in mind. Is- right. There's certainly in what I mean, what's interesting, what was interesting to me was the extent to which these competing visions exist among black Republicans. Right. Like I was struck by the amount of infighting among black Republicans, right? We tend to think of black Republicans themselves as a monolithic group. But even within that group, there are these very, very different articulations and different understandings of, right, sort of what race politics should look like or if politics should be inflected with race. Um, And so part of what's interesting is how that gets mediated through you know, within the broader conservative movement. Yeah, one of so one of the things that um, and thinking about and thinking about this book today as we were preparing for the show, one of the things um, that I wondered is, you know, especially in thinking about those Black Republicans who decided they no longer wanted to be taken for granted by the Democratic Party. Um, you know, sort of what kind of I don't know what kind of lessons should the Democrats actually take from these black Republicans, you know, especially in light of, you know, the you know, people have been saying and sort of during this autopsy of the last presidential election that Democrats, you know, the whole identity politics thing is what did you in, which I find really interesting because it seems that when you focus on the white working class and beat that to death. That's not considered identity politics, but you know, that's neither here nor there. So I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that, Corey. Yeah, um, I think, you know, in some ways, part of what's interesting about this is black voters in general in the U.S. are really constrained, partly by the nature of politics, right? Like, your choices are heavily constrained. So there's sort of two options. I mean, um, Paul Freimer writes about this as blacks being a captured vote, right? So Mm -hmm. because the Republican Party doesn't really do much to reach out to them, that frees up the Democrats to not have to care so much because where else are you going to go? Right. Um, I think the real day, I mean, the danger for Democrats is non-engagement. So black voters just don't turn out. Mm -hmm. Right. They sort of see this like captured option and just like, well, screw it. I'm not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And because the Democrats have been saddled as the black party, they, you know, kind of get. I guess, for lack of a better term, like the negatives without any of the sort of corresponding votes, positives. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like what, you know, what to do, uh, what Democrats can do with this, I that's a good question, actually. I hadn't really thought much about it. And most of the questions have been focused on like, when people ask this, like, what can the Republican Party do based on your insights? Um, I mean, I guess most broadly, I would say maybe it's not so much like um, a pragmatic or practical do X, Y, and Z thing, but a broader, the message of the story. Because I think you know, one of the broader messages around the, the politics of it is, you know, within the Republican Party, engagement in the Republican Party really has this way of constraining how black people can talk about being black, right? And... To the extent that I think the same thing happens on the left as well. Um, 
there maybe is a lesson there for, you know, trying to find ways to free up uh, space for, you know, different ways of you know, talking about, thinking about, and expressing, you know, blackness within the Democratic Party. Although, I mean, certainly there's more, there's more room for that. And you're seeing this, right? Like the Bernie Sanders campaign with the whole thing, there were, you know, the black people who supported Bernie Sanders being like, don't silence us, you know, like all black people weren't for Hillary. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, um, maybe one way to think about this. Gabriel. Yeah, so um, a bit ago, Corey was talking about there's this divide between black Republicans who primarily identify themselves as, you know, just colorblind conservatives and those who um, primarily identify themselves in terms of this is the best route to um, solving or helping uh, the problems of black people. Um, and I, I was thinking, the, the way you usually think about the conservative movement, and to a lesser extent, the Republican Party, is that there's a divide between kind of the insider, somewhat elite, technocratic camp, and the um, the more populist camp. And I see that also occurring among black Republicans. But as I was like writing down a list of names, I could see it kind of cross-cutting too, right? So it's like, if you think of like the kind of like intellectual, insidery type people, you have, uh, you know, people like Jason Riley, Tom Sowell, uh, Clarence Thomas, depending on what side of the bed he got up in the morning, Glenn Lowry. And, um, and you know, some of those guys would be um, essentially kind of race blind, and some of them would be very oriented towards the, uh, you know, specifically black issues, right? So uh, Thomas, historically, not necessarily right now, but historically, and Glenn Lowry would identify themselves as focused on the issues of black America, whereas I think uh, Riley and Seoul, not so much. Uh, mm -hmm. And then kind of on the populist, you know, demagogy type side, um, you know, you got people like Sheriff Clark, uh, Herman Cain, Ben Carson. And, and again, I see kind of cross-cutting there where Clark would identify himself as, um, you know, more the colorblind type. And, and, and actually, I think part of his appeal is that he kind of creates... Uh, he, he'll echo back some pretty nasty things that white people like to think. And, right. you know, it's appealing because he's black. Uh, you know, whereas Ben Carson, you know, he comes out of this uh, cross-cutting black and evangelical tradition. Anyway, I'm just thinking that you can almost have like a two-by-two two of like, you know, populist versus intellectual, which is kind of the main cleave within the uh, Republican Party. And we know who won the last primary on that. Uh and then uh, also this issue that you're talking about, about, you know, what, what's primary and what's secondary. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, that's an interest, yeah, interesting perspective on it. I mean, because in some ways, you know, the to end up as a prominent black Republican, right, like mm -hmm. requires buy-in from white Republican gatekeepers, right? Like, so yes. when we hear about a black Republican, we hear about them through, they come through channels of the Republican Party, right? It's were, very were you the one who told me uh, the joke, what do you call the only black guy at a conservative conference? And the answer is Mr. Keynote Speaker. <laughs> I don't recall telling that joke to you, yeah. but maybe. I mean, I remember yeah. we talked. We've talked about yeah. this, that this happens, right? That like so. One of the things that would happen with fieldwork, I'd go, you know, show up at events, and it'd be like, you know, black Republican and blue state caucus, and I'd be like, okay, you know, this is going to be a thing, and it's like. There would be, you know, two black people there, me and the speaker, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of thing happened all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So in some ways to, you know, get a platform, right? Because that's partly because, you know, black Republicans are frozen out of a lot of black politics, right? Like there's no seat at the table, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. if you want resources, those resources have to come from white Republicans, right? But that means you have to sort of go through the gauntlet of white Republicans. Um, and part of making it through that gauntlet means like walking this fine line on this sort of race blind, race conscious dimension, Gabriel. And so, you know, someone mm -hmm. like Ben Carson, um, 
you know, in terms of like channeling his way up to where he is, has to sort of initially take this like, or not, at some point has to sort of embrace and sort of full-throated, give full-throated support to a sort of race doesn't matter <laughs> perspective, right? Otherwise, you know, um, when, you know, it's only been very recently that when it, Fox News would even be interested in someone saying black power through conservative principles, mm-hmm. right, over like race doesn't matter when it comes to black Republicans. Well, maybe so, for Fox that's new, but I mean, that was uh, Nixon experimented with that appeal. And so did uh, William F. Buckley. So I, I recently read um, one of uh, Heather Hendershot's books. I forgot what it was called, but it was her book on firing line. And she was talking about how in the 70s, this was kind of a thing um, of, uh, you know, conservative intellectuals that they were kind of flirting with the idea of black power and how they could form an alliance with it. Definitely. And and so, right. And so in some ways, yeah, it, the relationship between the Republican, as the relationship between race, blackness within the Republican Party has evolved, so has there been like a shift in what black Republicans look like, right? Like one of the things I sort of talk about is how, you know, in some ways, black Republicans themselves become bellwethers for what the Republican Party looks like. You can tell a lot about the party by its black Republicans, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, if you think about Edward Brooke from Massachusetts in the 60s and 70s, right, this was, you know, a black Republican senator who, you know, was a, you know, ardent supporter of civil rights, you know, outspoken on that, deeply embraced by the black community, right? And then you sort of, you know, the evolution of what the Republican Party has been about has led to shifts in what its black Republicans look look like. So now, you're right, you know, what is it? Diamond and silk are the face of black Republicanism in this sort of Trumpian era. Um, but that's partly a function of, you know, shifts within the party, right, in terms of who sure. gets... Who, who gets a platform. So, so, um, so speaking of these kind of issues of like uh, changes over time, uh, I realized this wasn't the kind of methods that you'd be conducive to, but you obviously did all the background work. Um, to what extent do you see like cohort effects, right? To, to what extent uh, would black Republicans be identified with people from cohorts that came of age before the civil rights movement, you know, as compared to kind of when you had uh you know, the Southern strategy and that sort of thing, and to a certain extent, the uh, uh, the party constituencies flipped. Yeah, so I think you end up with, so the vast majority of people that I talk to, right, uh, it's actually, it's post-civil rights, so younger cohorts are mm-hmm. actually more likely to be re- uh, Republican. Mm-hmm. I mean, all this is in flux, obviously. Who knows? I mean, I don't sure. want to sort of speak with permanence, but there was a, yeah, the sort of, and part of that was like being further away, both from the collective orientation of black politics around the civil rights movement, right? And so there's this sort of variation in like what you can want as a black person. We don't all want the same thing, combined with being further removed from explicit, like anti black messaging of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of happened with younger cohorts. Um, in some ways, it's a weird thing, like this book, I feel like, you know, the research was collected and actually the book was written for the most part before this most recent um, election. And so a lot of the things that's like, well, this sort of, you know, movement away from explicitly racial appeals by the Republican <laughs> yeah. Party makes me sound like a fool yeah. today. Yeah. But, um, just think, like, a year ago, if we were doing this, he'd be like, yeah, that's Did, did you look into how much it would have cost you to buy out the print run and have it pulled? Where are you headed now in terms of your research? Uh, so the next big project, I have a couple, like, what I'm calling my palate cleanser things. Uh, but the next <laughs> big project actually grows out of some of the Black Republican stuff. So one of the things that... Um, I was struck by with the ways in which being black in the context of the Republican Party kind of afforded you extra stuff, right? And so in some ways, like, your blackness operated almost as this, like, I don't know, human capital benefit, right? And that got me thinking about ways in which, you know, how we can think about sort of social identities like race um, providing a competitive edge. So... 
I'm now thinking about what happens when who you are and what you do overlap um, and like who you are provides an edge in terms of what you do. So I'm going to be studying what I'm now calling temporarily, I think, identity professionals, people whose jobs are linked to who they are. And more specifically, looking at black people working in advertising. So it's going to be a study that looks at black people working in advertising who do this in black ad agencies mm-hmm. compared oh, yeah. to black people who work in advertising, but who work in you know what the industry calls mainstream agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just trying to better understand, yeah, like the at an individual level, what happens to your sense of identity when your job is partly being black, right? Like, does it make you more committed? Does it make you cynical about identity? Mm-hmm. Um, and then at an organizational level, looking at how does blackness get incorporated into organizational mission. Um, but then at like a sort of macro level or cultural level, like part of the job of being, you know, a black person, to advertise, McDonald's comes to you and says, I need to understand black consumers and blackness, right? As if it's this thing out in the world that can be understood. But the very people tasked with understanding it are also creating the thing itself, right? Because it's like, well, part of, you know, our ideas about what blackness means come from these, like, you know, mass media images kind of thing that advertisers are producing. So that's the next project, Black People in Advertising. Um, I totally, uh, sorry, I totally recommend watching Putney Swope, all I got to say. Yeah, I, I was thinking that that sounds like a, a great field site for that sort of thing, because I, I don't read ad age cover to cover, but I at least skim the headlines most days. And I feel like at least three or four times a week, there's an article along those themes in uh, ad age. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, in some ways been a bit of an obsession uh, within the industry. Um, and yeah, something I've been interested in for a while. So yeah, so that's yeah, that's what I'm going to work on. I mean, like I said, it was I'd been interested in it before the Black Republican Project, mm-hmm. but then coming out of that, it definitely sort of thinking about, you know, sort of how blackness operates at these multiple levels, mm-hmm. you know, like the individual black Republicans, but also within the Republican Party as an organization. But then all that sort of contingent on these cultural ideas about who black people are and what they need politically. And I just thought, oh, maybe sort of extracting some of those questions and looking at it not just through sort of politics but through work might be interesting so Corey, i have another question for you uh, uh about methods uh can you so in the process of doing the uh project what did you learn about sort of the tricks of the trade of doing research some advice that you might pass on to somebody who wants to emulate your methods yeah uh hmm, interesting so i guess for qualitative people who might be listening one of the things that so this was one of the the things about this project was no surprise finding black republicans was actually incredibly difficult so (laughs) i spent a lot of time looking for people um and actually spent a lot of time you know not being able to interview people or observe things and what i actually ended up doing was you know, some secondary, some analysis of secondary data, so national black election survey stuff, some NES pooling, some NES data. Um, and in the process of doing that, it actually helped me refine what I wanted to do qualitatively. So I had actually a much better sense of what I was looking for, what I wanted to talk to people about. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, it was a fortunate difficulty in that, you know, I had a hard time launching into the field. And so I was forced to do something else so that I would feel productive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that worked out really well. Um, I guess the other interesting thing methodologically that happened in the field was, you know, I often found myself in situations where, you know, I had to decide what to do in terms of like, people would 
often say racist things. Mm -hmm. And black people would say really negative things about other black people to white audiences. And this, this happened a lot where there would be a lot of the audience would look to me for affirmation, right? It's sort of like head, this like informal head nodding thing that, you know, I, if you're observing, you see it's like, oh yeah, right, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they would look to me to be like, right, yeah. And I would be struck with this, like, what do I do now? Because it's in the middle of the event and I'm gonna wanna talk to all these people at my table afterwards. And if I don't nod along, this is going to be a problem. So, you know, um, that was sort of methodologically, I mean, I guess it wasn't a methodological issue, but uh, this sort of experience of doing research where you're like, what am I willing to do to get the data? Uh Um, And I mean, I'm a whore. I found myself willing to do quite a bit (laughs) to get the data, but... And now, a word from Editor Bing. We take the manuscript from the authors, the oppressors who ignored important citations, and we give it back to you, the reviewers. Step forward, those who would review. The authors will be ripped from their decadent offices and told to cite works that we know and enjoy. Sites will be worked in. Related literatures will be addressed. Alternate specifications will be run. The authors will survive. As they learn to serve true scholarship, this great discipline, it will endure. Sociology will survive. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Corey Fields of Georgetown University. His book is Black Elephants in the Room, The Unexpected Politics of African-American Republicans. It was published in 2016 by the University of California Press. We are on the web at theannexpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SochAnnex or on Facebook, we are The Annex Sociology Podcast. On behalf of Leslie Hinkson and Gabriel Rossman, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.